She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and today I am here to talk about the Salem witch trials and the broads who were accused and hanged at the Salem witch trials specifically. Before I dig in, uh, a little background, we are in... Witch season, it's spooky season, and I'm doing a mini-series here on witches. The women they called witches, that is, because as most of us know these days, the witch trials that have existed throughout time were seldom about actual Wiccans. They uh, were tools of the patriarchy to take down the women around them and various other uh, nefarious things. And that is what this miniseries is exploring, the why and the how witch trials benefited other people. So last week, I replayed the episode with Caitlin Parrish on Half-Hanged Mary. Excellent episode on the woman who was tried multiple times for witchcraft, hanged, but did not die, and therefore was allowed to live alone. Excellent story. Go back last week and listen to that if you missed that one. But today is the whammy of North American witch trials, and that is Salem. I want to talk about Salem. I feel like, for me personally, most of my knowledge of Salem, this is embarrassing to admit, uh, comes from Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. We read it in English in high school, and... We performed scenes from it in drama and watched the movie. Everybody, I feel like, has seen or done that play who is a person who is in theater and entertainment. It's just kind of like this touchstone piece in American playwright literature. And so I feel like most of my knowledge kind of stems from that. And I was curious when I decided to do this series on witches how much of what I knew from the play was the reality and and what we know to be the reality of those circumstances and how much was fictionalized by Arthur Miller. Because I honestly didn't know what was what, right? So, so in Arthur Miller's play, for those of you who haven't read or seen some form of The Crucible, uh, uh, the quick recap version is that these young women, some of whom lust after... John Proctor, etc. They go into hysterics and they accuse all these people of, of witchcraft. And the part that is true, uh, generically speaking, is the fact that these young women between the ages of, I believe, nine and 19 uh, did indeed become the primary accusers of all of the people that were accused of witchcraft. And there were other witnesses that came forth in the trial, but it was these girls who kind of fingered the primary, quote, witches um, for various reasons. What I did not find in my research was the John Proctor, they're in love with John Proctor storyline. 
Uh, that doesn't seem to be anything but kind of a figment of Arthur Miller's imagination. But what I did find was not as surprising as I thought. Um, so I am going to just dig right into the research here. The late 1600s Massachusetts was a really tough time to be alive. It was an age of religious extremism. So we're talking in Salem, Massachusetts and kind of the whole kind of north, northeast up there were, were mostly inhabited by Puritans. And generally speaking, Puritans left England because they were too extreme and didn't find themselves welcome there anymore in England. So they came to America where they could live their own, quote, religious freedoms, however, you know, however extremely they wanted to. This is also a very, it's an age of very extreme class distinctions. Women couldn't own property, except in the case that their husband died and you had no sons. Fortunes were made and lost very quickly. Disease killed a lot of people. Crops flourished or died. And new trades were exploding all over the place. With regard to Salem itself, it's important to note here there's a huge class distinction between Salem Village, where many of the accusations and accusers originated from, and Salem Town, where a number of the accused were from. And many of the accused also weren't from Salem itself. They were from neighboring towns, Andover, uh, various Ipswich, all these other places around the area. Now, Salem Town was a relatively wealthy port city, so it had a lot of more modern industry, a lot of trading. And Salem Village was mostly poor farmers, or at least not wealthy farmers, we'll say. This is also a time of a lot of conflict, not only between indigenous tribes and the colonizers, but also between the colonizers and the colonizers. That's right, each other. They were fighting with each other a lot. New laws and town boundaries and things were being drawn up constantly, and it was all being done really badly. So now is where we enter the conflict between Topsfield and Salem Village. There was this big land dispute that basically had its roots in a clerical error many years prior to the witch trials. So the witch trials are in, are in 1692. But prior to that, decades prior, the government grants the same land to both Topsfield and Salem Village. Uh, after 1639, a man named John Putnam, who lives in Salem Village, and his sons occupied about a thousand acres to the north of Ipswich River. In 1650, the court created the town of Topsfield, which included land south of the Ipswich River, which was already owned by John Putnam. And in the 1650s, John Putnam's sons, Thomas and Nathaniel, they were living on, occupying the land that was in dispute. And Thomas's son, Edward, uh, also owned some of the land. And the woods that were closest to Salem Village were in huge contention. Whose woods were they? Who could chop wood in that area? And in 1659, representatives from both towns set some boundaries within the land, and they all agreed on it together, including specifically Thomas and Nathaniel Putnam were there at those meetings. They all agreed. Uh, and in 1668, uh, these common lands were granted 
to the Topsfield men and not the Putnams. And the Putnams were like, no, this was an error. This is our land. And they kept having disagreements back and forth. They kept having, they kept going to court to not, I guess, the modern equivalent of suing each other, but for the rights of the land, right? Um, Several lawsuits ended in favor of Topsfield. And why am I keep saying the word Topsfield? Why is this story even important? It's because there's a few names that we're about to talk about, which are specifically Howe, Eastie, Wilds, and Town. Those names, those last names, are names that would become accused during the witch trials a decade later. Clearly, some of these long-standing decades, multiple decades-long land disputes kind of eke in. This is the theme for this episode, is these old disputes, all these bitter rivals will, will end up coming to the surface and becoming kind of the center of the witch trials, but not out loud. No one ever says it out loud, which is the most insane part of this whole episode in American history. Let's talk a little bit more about the Putnams. So Edward and John Putnam Of the 19 people that were executed in these trials for witchcraft, the Putnam signature is on 14 of those accusations. Uh, And Thomas Putnam Jr. was one of the primary names. And the Putnams in general, were they were farmers who considered themselves very simple and austere. They were traditional Puritans, farmers, workers of the land, these like, Pure Puritans, I'm going to just say, for lack of a better term. Um, And they really looked down on what was going on in Salem Town, specifically all of the merchants there. They thought that these merchants who were making a lot of money were becoming too individualistic and that they were in opposition to the communal nature that Puritan and Puritanism mandated. But there rival family who who was in Salem town they weren't just farmers they were also they, they farmed a little bit but they were also entrepreneurs because they were in this trades town in this port town so they had all these commercial interests in other areas and all of these diversified businesses that they had really increased their wealth and so the the Porter family, which was in a direct opposition to the, Put- the Putnams, um, they became wealthier and wealthier, and the Putnams kind of didn't. Their wealth kind of stagnated. It didn't grow. They didn't do particularly well. Uh, now, Thomas uh, felt particularly fucked over. Thomas Putnam felt particularly fucked over when his dad died and left most of his fortune to his second wife and son, Thomas's half-brother. Thomas Jr. and his brother would contest the will. They weren't successful at that. And then his half-brother, Joseph, marries Elizabeth Porter, the daughter of his sworn enemy, Israel Porter, in these these disputes. And it's like a fucking soap opera. This this all is a soap opera, which makes it so crazy. I mean, Miller's play was a soap opera, too. But when you hear these facts, it reads like a soap opera, too. Um, now, Thomas's wife, Anne Carr Putnam, had also been disinherited 
When her really rich daddy died, she got nothing. Her brothers got it all. And she was said to be extremely bitter about this. And she also was said to be a woman of, quote, highly sensitive temperament, which I'm reading the li- between the lines in the research books to say that she was not a very mentally stable person. She was unstable as hell. Uh, and these two embittered and unstable assholes are married and they have a daughter also named Anne Putnam. And Anne was not the first girl to fall into fits due to witchcraft. Um, Elizabeth Paris, I believe, was the first girl to start having the fits. But really quickly, Anne Putnam Jr., we'll call her, would also start to show some symptoms of having been afflicted by witchcraft. And then also, Thomas Putnam's niece, Mary Walcott, and one of his servant girls, Mercy Lewis, would fall into these fits as well. But Anne Putnam Jr. was, she would become the most prolific accuser in the witchcraft trials. And her name appears over 400 times in the court documents. And by the time all the hysteria was over, she had accused 19 people and seen 11 of them hanged. Uh, 19 people, and that's not to say that other people weren't accused. Those are the people that went to trial, right? And her daddy, Thomas Putnam Jr., Mr. Bitter, pretty much led the charge in these arrests and trials of most of these accused in the Salem Witch Trials. He gave his daughter's accusations legal weight by, by like pursuing warrants against these accused witches, um, starting in February 1692. And then he would write down the depositions of the girls, personally swearing a number of complaints, writing letters of encouragement to all the judges. He, Thomas Jr. has not ever been accused of deliberately setting up the hysteria, but he and his family and his, you know, extended family and his friends certainly really benefited from the deaths of these 19 people. It's fucking ridiculous to me that the history books are not a little bit more obvious about this point. Um, I mentioned them a little bit, but but the primary accusers in the Salem witch trials are Anne Putnam Jr., the daughter of Thomas and Anne, Mercy Lewis, the servant of Thomas, uh, Elizabeth Paris, or Betty, also called Betty Paris, who was the daughter of Reverend Samuel Paris, Abigail Williams, who was the cousin of Betty Paris, Mary Walcott, who was a 16-year-old daughter of Captain Jonathan Walcott, who was a leader of the Salem Village Militia, and also, hilariously, not hilariously, but um, not ironically, related to the Putnam family by marriage, and Junior was her step-cousin. There also was Elizabeth Hubbard, who was a niece of Dr. William Griggs, and there was Mary Warren, who was a servant of Elizabeth and John Proctor. Um, I really don't want to spend a lot of time on the girls. Um, they were fucking kids. They were girls, young girls. And it feels really obvious to me in all this research that these girls were um, really 
following in the footsteps of the adults in their lives who had influence over them, either their dads or uncles or their masters or their, um, you know, if you're an enslaved girl, you do what your master tells you, right? Um, so let's not spend a ton of time on the girls, but I do want to address the question of how the fuck did this even happen? How did these girls' testimonies, writhing on the floor, accusing these women and men of, of doing witchcraft on them, of haunting them, how did the testimony of these little twats count for anything in the legal court? Because it, it seems absolutely crazy to me that that happened. And what it comes down to, and this is new information for me because I didn't know this, um, it comes down to spectral evidence. Spectral evidence is the witness of somebody else, somebody's like ghost spectral version of another person doing something, a vision of somebody doing something. Not necessarily that person, not not actually that person themselves, not seeing a person perform witchcraft, but but having their specter, this vision of them taking action, doing something that is in relation to witchcraft. And in the case of these girls, you know, the most common accusation was, oh, she pinches me, she chokes me, she scratches me, she does these things to me, she is flying on the rafters, she is sitting on the rafters looking at me. These are all things that I'm read in the research that I'm just kind of rattling off right now. But, you know, these are specters, not even the women themselves. And there are, there's a very clear distinction in the witch trials, uh, the Salem witch trials specifically, where the first half of the Salem witch trials in, in which all of the people were killed, the 19 people died, the 19 plus people died, um, they are allowing spectral evidence. And then there's a second half of the trials that end up happening, I believe in Boston, they moved to Boston, I think, and spectral evidence is not permitted. It's not admitted in court as official testimony. And in the first half of those trials, all these people die. And in the second half of the trials, when spectral evidence is omitted, nobody dies and everybody is sent home from the jails. So I, I don't, I did not find in my research, like why the fuck spectral evidence was allowed because it's literally improvable. It's, it's one person saying they had a vision and saw something with no actual literal physical evidence to back it up. Um, and there are instances which, you know, I'm going to talk about as we go through the more specific stories in a minute here, but there's instances where the girls were trying to find evidence and then you had other people in the town testifying that they saw this person do this or this person caused their cow to die. But it it's still not direct correlation. It's all just this like insane babble. Um, and I don't know, I, I use the word insane a lot in this episode because I, I don't understand how it happened, how so many people were on this bandwagon and believed these girls and did not see past the girls and their families who were kind of leading the charge. And in fact, the Putnams, the, the parents were also often the ones bringing the testimony against these people. It's, I just don't understand how nobody saw it for what it was, which was people 
literally who hated other people from these land and other disputes that were going on at the time or people they just didn't like in town that they wanted to be rid of that were convenient to get rid of that nobody would speak up for um and that part of the Salem witch trials I it's still unfathomable even for someone who now has seen a bunch of weird shit in the last six years you know and since Trump was elected basically it's like how how did those things happen? How did the Salem witch trials happen? And for me, there, you know, there are similarities. There are similarities. But anyway, uh, I want to talk now. I want to spend the rest of the episode now talking about the broads that were hanged for witchcraft. Because this is a podcast about broads. I don't want to talk about the Putnams, those assholes. And I don't want to talk about the little girls who are full of shit. Um, Let's talk about these broads who were accused, tried, and then were hanged. And by the way, uh, it's worth noting in the United States, women or witches were not uh, burnt at the stake, which they were in the other witch trials in Europe. In the U.S., I guess we had enough dignity. or It wasn't the U.S. yet. It was the colonies at this point. But there was enough dignity that they did not burn them at the stake. They only hanged them. Um... A strange note. I don't know why I felt like I needed to, to add that in for you, but now you know. Now you, now you know for, for trivia and, and whatnot. So let's start with Bridget Bishop. Who was Bridget Bishop? Unfortunately for Bridget Bishop, the town of Salem already thought that she was a witch before this moment arrived. She had kind of been an outcast for a really long time, And I'm sure you're like, what were her crimes? Why was she being called a witch before? By the way, this isn't the first time, 1692 isn't the first time witchcraft, the word witchcraft hit the town. 1692 is just when we had this hysteria wherein hundreds of people were arrested and only 19 people died um, or were hanged, which compared to European numbers isn't that huge, but it was huge for the U.S. For the, keep saying the U.S., it was huge for the colonies. Um, So what were Bridget's crimes? Well, of course, Bridget was on her third marriage, her first two husbands having died, and the second husband, which she fought with often and in public, and sometimes they fought on the Sabbath. This is also a, a moment to note. There's historical evidence that her second husband was abusive as hell. Bridget often appeared on the street with cuts and bruises. Fuck that second husband. But her husband, her second husband, had owned quite a bit of land, which upon her marriage to her third husband fell under his protection, since women weren't actually supposed to be landowners. And Bridget lived in Salem. She did not live in Salem Village. She lived in Salem Town. And they ran some taverns that were very popular. And she also apparently partied harder than her other good Puritan neighbors. One of her neighbors reported on her, quote, Goodwife Bishop might not be permitted to receive the Lord's Supper in our church because the said bishop did entertain people in her house at unseasonable hours in the night to keep drinking and playing at shovelboard, whereby discord did arise in other families, and young people were in danger to be corrupted. End quote. Holy shit. She was corrupting the youth and she was partying too late at night. Um, and because Bridget lived in Salem Town and not Salem Village, she didn't even know 
these girls, Anne, Abigail, these accusers. She didn't even know them because she didn't spend time in Salem Village. She lived in the town running the tavern. In her testimony at, at court, Bridget said, quote, I never saw these persons before, nor was I in this place before. I am as innocent as the child unborn. I am innocent of a witch. It's thought that Bridget was brought into the whole witch trial scenario because she would be the easiest to convict. And the way that the trial went down definitely reflected that. Judge Hawthorne himself accused her of bewitching her first husband to death. During the trial, he says this. He accuses her of killing her husband. In addition to the hysterical girl's accusations, a slew of her neighbors also jumped on board with their own accusations, saying things like, quote, She asked me to dye lace for her, but the pieces were so small they could have only been used for poppets, end quote. Poppets were uh, like the then voodoo dolls that witches would use to practice crimes on. Come on! This guy says that she asked him to dye lace too small, and this is is the, the evidence against her that she is a witch. There was another couple at her trial that said that she made their son sick just by looking at him. And even her own husband, um, sadly, would end up testifying against her. Bridget would be the first victim that was hanged in the Salem witch trials. But I'm sure that her husband really enjoyed all of the land that he got from her from her previous marriage. Next is Rebecca Nurse. Who was Rebecca Nurse? Well, unlike Bridget, Rebecca was one of the most respected people in Salem Village. In Salem Village, she lived in the village where the accusers were. Her husband was a tray maker, aka a fancy woodmaker, very respectable job in that area. And they were very upstanding and pious citizens. So when the girls accused Rebecca of witchcraft, the whole town actually was in a little bit of an uproar, and many people uh, rose up in Rebecca's defense. In her trial, the accused, none of the accused actually in the tr- in the trials were allowed to have lawyers. They had to represent themselves. Um, but Rebecca had many people coming to testify on her behalf. And in the end, the jury actually rules Rebecca not guilty. But then... There's public outcry about that verdict. And the girls immediately go back into fits and spasms. And the judges decide to review the case with the jury. And the jury requests a second chance of deliberation. And the jury in the second chance deliberation asks Rebecca to explain a remark that she had previously made about an accused witch, another accused witch, Deliverance Hobbs, who was, quote, of her company. And the jury was kind of implying that they signed the pack together, that they were in company as witches. But Rebecca was 71 years old, and she was very hard of hearing, and she couldn't really hear the question. And later on, she would explain to her children that she was referring to this other woman as a fellow accused witch, which seems obvious. But her lack of response when she was asked that question was enough for the jury to change their verdict. And they sentenced Rebecca Nurse to death on July 19th, 1692. 
Next is Sarah Good. Sarah Good was a pregnant beggar who was very disliked by the village. For years before the witch trial hysteria, Sarah and her husband had a number of disagreements with other Salem residents, and they were very unpopular. Sarah Abbey testified during the trials that three years prior, she had allowed Sarah Good and her husband to stay in her home, but eventually kicked her out because she was, quote, spiteful and malicious. And ever since then, the Abbey family lost a number of cattle to mysterious illnesses, which she believed was the work of Good's witchcraft. Sarah Gadge also testified that she refused to let Sarah Good into her home one day. And then Sarah muttered something under her breath. And the following day, one of her cows died mysteriously. And this also, Sarah Good's trial was also the trial in which, uh, quote, one of the witnesses who sat in the room cried out, that Good had stabbed her and had broken the knife blade in doing so, and the point of the blade was taken from her clothes where she said she was stabbed. Thereupon, a young man arose in the court and stated that he broke that very knife the previous day and threw away the point. He produced the remaining part of the knife. It was then apparent that the girl had picked up the point which he threw and put it in the bosom of her dress whence she drew it to corroborate her statement that someone had stabbed her, end quote. So there's this evidence presented by one of the girls that Sarah Good stabbed her. Here's the knife that broke off. And this young guy is like, oh, no, that's my knife point. I broke that. And yet Sarah Good is still found guilty of witchcraft and is hanged. And then Sarah Good's daughter, Dorothy Good, who was six years old, or possibly four. One source said four, other sources said six. Dorothy was also accused of witchcraft because, of course, her mother was, so she must have been as well. And she had to spend four, six or four years old. She had to spend seven or eight months in jail before she was finally released. But as a, a result of the experience, she was never quite the same. Her father would later say that he had to pay someone to watch her. Like she never could take care of herself. She always had to kind of have a keeper looking over her. So that's Sarah Good and her daughter, Dorothy. Susanna Martin. Susanna had also been accused of witchcraft twice before 1692. And during her first witchcraft case, she was accused by William Brown of tormenting his wife, Elizabeth, with her spirit. After her arrest, Susanna was released on bail. Eventually, the charges were dropped. She was accused again in 1669 by William Sargent Jr., who said he witnessed Susanna give birth and kill an illegitimate baby. Susanna again posts bail, and she promises to return for court for her trial, but the charges are dropped, and later her husband George would, um, he would sue Sargent for slander. And the court held Sergeant liable for slander in accusing Susanna, and the charges were dismissed. Uh, after several failed 
court battles to inherit the bulk of her father's estate in 1671. And then with the death of her husband in 1686, Susanna was left penniless and kind of she was a defenseless widow at the time of the trials and she is accused by the girls after her arrest Susanna is brought to Salem Village where she's questioned by Judge Hawthorne and Judge Corwin and she twice undergoes a humiliating physical examination this was a common thing that happened in the witch trials where they would examine the woman's body to try to find a quote witch's teat which is what they believed witches used to feed their familiars i think it was just like bumps and lumps and weird skin malformations but they would would say oh it's a witch's teat um so twice Susanna went underwent this examination. No witch mark was found. But the examiner, I'm saying this because this is so gross and I feel like everyone else should know how humiliating this must have been. The examiner made a note in Susanna's file that, quote, in the morning, her nipples were found to be as full as if the milk would come. But later in the day, her breasts were slack as if milk had already been given to someone or something, end quote what the fuck ah and then apparently during her examination she is being questioned by the judge and she laughs at the ridiculousness of the girls accusations she had no idea who the girls were she too did not know the girls that were accusing her she didn't live in the same town as them she had never met them but george hawthorne did not care for that laughter and Susanna was found guilty and hanged Elizabeth Howe. Elizabeth Howe also had been accused of witchcraft before. Do you see the pattern? Most of these people had been accused before. They were people that weren't very well liked by their neighbors. In 1682, Elizabeth was accused of bewitching the 10-year-old daughter of Samuel and Ruth Purley. After a disagreement between the Howes and the Purleys, their daughter began to suffer from fits and thought she was being pricked by pins. There was a doctor summoned to diagnose the girl, and the doctor diagnosed her as, quote, bewitched. And the young girl said, oh, it was Elizabeth Howe that bewitched her. The girl suffered a few more years and then eventually died. And... Elizabeth was named as a witch in that circumstance. She was never arrested or brought up on official charges. But that reputation, that that whole incident damages her reputation permanently. And she was prevented from joining a local church. She, you know, you had to join when you were a member of the church or moved to a different place to a different city and had to join the church. It was a big deal and you had to like apply. And she was not accepted because of these previous accusations. Um... And rumors just kind of kept spreading about her. So, of course, when she was taken to trial by these young girls, all of these old neighbor quarrels, though specifically the Pearly family, came to testify against her. And all of the same old accusations that had previously been thrown out and not taken to trial were brought back up in this trial. And it's unreal to me that the, judge, the judges would allow it. Um, but it seems like it was just pure chaos and that the judges just didn't give any shits or at least they were on the side of the Putnams um, and there was even a moment in the trial for Elizabeth Howe that um, 
somebody witnessed that he had literally seen one of the brothers of the girls who was having fits try to convince the girl that Elizabeth was the tormentor. Like, the girl had not named her. And her brother's like, but it was Elizabeth Howe, wasn't it? And she's like, no, I don't think so. And this witness was like, she, I think it was a he actually, goes up and, and reprimands the boy. But he, he, this witness testifies in the court that he sees this. And still, and still, Elizabeth Howe is found guilty and she is hanged. Sarah Wilds. Sarah, too, she had a couple brushes with the law prior to the witch trials of 1692. In 1649, Sarah Wilds was brought to court and ordered to be whipped for fornicating out of wedlock. Oh, no. And in 1663, she was accused of violating the colony's laws by wearing a silk scarf. Oh, my God. A silk scarf. Can you imagine? But since her early days, those early days, uh, Sarah Wilds had settled down and she had married a local Topsfield judge named John Wilds. He was a widower with eight children and his first wife, Priscilla Gould, had died eight months prior. Eventually they'd have a, a child together, Ephraim Wilds. And at the time of the witch trials, Ephraim was all grown up and he was a constable, a local constable. So someone of note. And for reasons that aren't clear in my research around 1670 john gould and mary gould reddington the brother and sister of priscilla gould sarah sarah's husband's first wife they had developed a deep hatred of sarah wilds um also worth noting conveniently at this moment that the gould family were actually very close friends of the putnams hmm in addition to this general hatred from the Gould family, the Wilds were also entangled in a land dispute. One of the one of the land disputes between Topsfield and Salem Village. Quote, the Wilds family belonged to the faction in Topsfield, which was active in the feud with Salem Village. It is not possible to say whether this in any way influenced the prosecutors of Sarah Wilds. Ephraim Wilds son of Sarah, deposed that the Marshal of Salem came to Topsfield with warrants for the arrest of his mother and William Hobbs and his wife. The Marshal served that on Sarah Wilds and young Wilds arrested Hobbs and his wife. Subsequently, they accused his mother and he thought it might be because he arrested them. End quote. So because he was a constable arresting people, they got mad and they accused his mom of witchcraft. Um, the same day that Sarah was arrested, John Wilde's daughter from a previous marriage and son-in-law, Sarah and Edward Bishop, were also arrested. And also John's other daughter, Phoebe Wilde's, were also arrested. Interesting that all of these rivals are all arrested on the same day. And though the hysterical girls who had never met Sarah, never met Sarah, they were the initial accusers. Most of the witnesses in Sarah's trial were all people that hated her or her son, the constable. They brought forward these stupid stories. One of the stories is about how they stole a scythe from Sarah after she refused to lend it to them. And then their ropes froze so they couldn't finish their work. 
And there were was a story about how animals died the next day after a conversation with Sarah. And my favorite of these stories has to be the man named Thomas Dorman, who explained that his cattle and geese suddenly became afflicted and died six years ago after Sarah Wilds bought a beehive from him and later heard from Anne Putnam that Wilds was responsible for the animals' deaths, even though he didn't know how Putnam even became aware of the incident. After she bought a beehive from him, and because Anne Putnam's dad was Thomas Putnam, but that guy was not working with a full set of sharpened crayons, that is for sure. Apparently, even the girl's male relatives testified against Sarah. Both Nathaniel Ingerson and Thomas Putnam also testified against Sarah that during conversations with the afflicted girls, quote, we have often seen them afflicted and often heard them say that one Goody Wilds of Topsfield did torture them and went on to describe how every time Sarah Wilds looked at the girls or clenched her hands during the trial examination, they were struck or choked by invisible forces that, quote, we believe Sarah Wilds, the prisoner at the bar, has several times afflicted and tormented the aforementioned persons by acts of witchcraft, end quote. So the daddies are like secondhand spectral witnesses now. They're seeing their daughters be tortured and they are witnessing the spectral. I just, it's fucking insane, you guys. It's insane. Next, we've got Martha Carrier. Oh, poor Martha. Martha was literally disliked for being poor. She apparently had previously been guilty of fornicating with her future husband prior to their marriage, a sin for the Puritans. Um, And it it appears everyone hated her because they blamed her for the smallpox outbreak in Andover, the city of Andover, two years prior. And that smallpox outbreak took the lives of 12 residents, half of which were her own family and her brother's brother's family. Um, Her trial was notable because of the initial testimonies were pretty weak compared to some of the other ones we've just been talking about. But as they, they, the the people in charge, the judges, the sheriffs, whatever, as they arrested and tortured other Andover residents, including Martha's own children, I have to say, people started confessing that Martha was the one that, quote, made them sign the devil's book, end quote. And I haven't mentioned it thus far in the episode, but it was very popular during the witch trials to get off of the hook for your own accusation by accusing others that made you do it, that made you do the witchcraft. And so Martha um, really was a victim of, of that more than anything. The, the other accused witches accusing her of being the one that turned them into witches. Also insane. Then there's Martha Corey. Martha was another well-respected churchgoer and a citizen when she was accused by the girls. At the time, she was married two years to Giles Corey, her third husband and a wealthy farmer. And when the Salem witch trials began in the spring of 1692, Martha and Giles Corey were some of the first people to actually attend the examinations, the trials, as they say. But Martha very quickly was really doubting the legitimacy of the claims. And she said so out loud. 
And she even had the audacity to hide Giles's saddle to try to prevent him from going to the next examination after he wasn't verbally dissuaded. She literally tries to hide his saddle. And in her trial, this, of course, was very damning. The fact that she didn't want more witches to be discovered was surely a sign that she was a witch. Very quickly after the saddle incident, the girls name her as one of the causes of their fits. And when the Putnams go to her house to question her, she was a little too haughty for their liking. And this haughtiness was also very damning in her trial as well, because good women were not so haughty. Her husband, Giles, ended up testifying against her too, likely to try to prevent his own accusation, but it didn't work and he was arrested too, at which point he pretty much denied his previous testimony against his wife. And they were both killed, her by hanging and him by the torture of pressing. Might remember that from the movie version. Next, we have Mary Eastie. Mary was the sister of Rebecca Nurse, who we talked about a little bit earlier. So she was another victim of those insane family land feuds. Her mother, Joanna, was informally accused of witchcraft after she became to the defense of a minister a few years prior. He had been brought to court for being angry and drunk. And in her testimony, apparently she said a few things that weren't flattering of the Gould family. So the Gould family hated her and therefore the Putnams hated her as well the whole family and so of course they hate her daughter Mary as well because feuds are feuds and they go on forever in this town and everything was worse or made worse rather when Mary's husband Isaac and several other family members testify against John Putnam for harvesting trees within the Topsfield boundary for which he was found guilty. So another part of that land dispute that goes to trial. Not really a shock at this point in the episode, but Mary was accused by the girls and she is found guilty and she is hanged as well. How convenient for the Putnams and their best friends, the Goulds. Alice Parker Well, Alice Parker was apparently the daughter of Giles Corey, which was enough to put her into the mouths of the hysteric girls. And it doesn't seem like there was much to go off of, apparently, because the girls really ham up their performances for Alice's trial. Apparently, one of the girls asks if she can strike Alice, but when she approached Alice, she fell down into fits. I mean, come the fuck on. The judges and the jury accepted this as witchcraft and not some girls acting up. It's fucking unreal to me. (sighs) Okay, Anne Pudeater. Pudeater? I'm not saying it right. But Anne, uh, as far as I can tell, her only crime was being a widow who wasn't poor. Her most recent husband died and left her with a couple properties, so she was doing okay for herself. And I guess being a widow and well-off was also a crime at this time. The girls accuse her in their fits. And when investigators go to her house, they find, quote, a bunch of ointments, 
which turned out to be soap-making materials, Anne said in, in her testimony, but the investigators could not understand why she would use so many little bottles instead of one big container. I kid you not, this happened in her trial. And she was found guilty and hanged, because ointments certainly were a sign of witchcraft. Margaret Scott, Margaret Oh, Margaret. Much like Sarah Good, if we remember pregnant Sarah Good, um, she got on her neighbor's nerves because she was also a poor beggar. Her husband died, leaving her with very little, so she had to beg to survive. And at 56 years old, life was really rough for her, and she was occasionally or maybe often salty with folks who wouldn't help her out. And when one of the girls accuses her and she's brought to trial, a number of folks in the community speak out against her, including... One guy who said that six years prior, when she had come begging for some corn from his field and he told her to wait for him to bring it from the field, she told him he would not be able to remove his corn from the field that night, so he should let her do it. His wife then gave her some corn and she left, but later that night, when the dude went to harvest his corn, his oxen refused to pull the cart, just like she had said. And he even had a friend of his come and corroborate that the oxen would not pull the cart. There's very little surviving paperwork from Margaret's trial specifically, and a couple of the others, but um, it's evident that no one came to her defense. She was accused, arrested, tried, and hanged pretty quickly. And then Mary Parker. Mary Parker is the only broad on this list that it doesn't appear was connected to previous bad blood with neighbors or land disputes or general disagreements. She was a fairly well-off widow and not particularly disliked by anybody. And her trial paperwork is also mostly lost so that we don't know much about the testimonies, but it would appear that she was accused by other accused people in the wildfire. Remember, accusing another witch lets you off the hook. So... Uh, since spectral evidence was still allowed, the girls' hysterics alone were enough to find Mary guilty, and she, too, was hanged. And those are the broads who died at the Salem Witch Trials. There also were six dudes that were hanged, including Giles. Um, not hanged, he was pressed to death. So seven dudes died. Five more broads died while they were in prison, including Mercy the newborn daughter of Sarah Good. The crowds of hysterical Puritans also killed some dogs, I guess they thought were witches' familiars. For, from January 1692 to October, 19 innocent people were hanged, one pressed to death, five died in prison, and two dogs killed by moms. Another 150 were accused and imprisoned in Salem and in Boston and Ipswich and Cambridge. The jails were incredibly overflowing, with all of the accusations, they had to be brought to other towns. It's also worth saying at this moment, by the way, when jails are full, that means that the sheriff and jailers and people associated there make a lot of money. A lot of money involved with all of these witch trials as well. The whole episode is absolutely, I said it too many times, but I don't have another word. It's insane. It's insane that 
spectral testimony was allowed. It's insane that the whole government ran this operation. This went through the court system with the judge, with the juries. All of this happened in a very official capacity, as official as it could be at that time period. And it wasn't until there was that break and they moved to do new trials with new judges in Boston that did not allow spectral evidence that people actually seemed to get their senses back. And even though later on there's been some official apologies and state recognition for the crimes against people and these uh, official witchcraft accusations have been lifted for, I believe, everybody at this point, nobody was ever fucking punished. The Putnams, the Goulds, all of these fucking people seem to have gotten away with it. Even in the history books, even though they talk about these feuds, nobody says, oh, people were manipulating what was going on. And that makes me fucking nuts, you guys. It makes me nuts that that is the case. And to call back to my introduction to the whole series, it makes me nuts when people talk about witch hunts and they don't seem to understand the context of how insane, absolutely insane they actually were. So there we have it. That is the Salem Witch Trials through the lens of me and the research that I did. And the true cause that I think, uh, really that I personally blame for, for what went on here. So I hope that you enjoyed learning all of this interesting info. I didn't know pretty much any of it, and I found it fascinating. I hope it was for you, too. To learn more about this episode of the Salem Witch Trials and see the pictures I found and other stuff, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about me, my bio, photo, links to all my cool stuff, and social, all right there. Speaking of social, are you following Broads You Should Know on social, Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know? and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you are a fan of this podcast, I ask you personally, help spread the word about us by sharing an episode with your friends and family or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed hearing this episode on the Salem Witch Trials, then I highly recommend you dial back to last week, check out that episode about Half-Hanged Mary, one of our other witch episodes that we've done. And you also should probably check out the Night Witches. They turned the tide of World War II. Great episode. And then come back next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>